This is The Conversation on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman. One of Hawaii's top tourism markets is back in business. The state's pre-travel testing program has now been extended to Japan, and the first flights have touched down in Honolulu. HPR's Ryan Finity was at the airport when that first flight from Japan arrived with a way for passengers to avoid a two-week quarantine, and he joins us now. And uh, Ryan, this development certainly welcome news to many in the hospitality industry. It really is also a, a story with some complications. Yeah, that's right, Bill. And uh, just to give everyone a little bit of background on uh, on why this matters, um, Japan is the first foreign country to reach an agreement with the state of Hawaii to allow its citizens to enter Hawaii without having to do that two-week quarantine that everyone has heard so much about, um, as long as they first test negative for COVID-19. Um, it's an extension of the program that launched last month for domestic travelers coming from the United States. Pretty similar rules, um, uh, certified tests, similar types of tests. Um, you have to have the test before you depart uh, wherever your uh, point of origin is, and then that has to be a negative test that will be verified by state authorities uh, upon landing. And this is kind of a big deal because Japan is the the second largest market for Hawaii's visitor industry after the mainland U.S. In 2019, 1.5 million Japanese citizens visited Hawaii, and they on average spend a, a significantly more money per day than Americans, Canadians, or Europeans. So they're a, a big economic engine for the state. And according to um, some some statistics I was given, a fully loaded passenger plane coming from Japan contributes more than $100 million to Hawaii's economy and pays for about 1,100 local jobs, just one plane. So this is uh, definitely um, good news for Hawaii's economy, and, um, and there has been an entire segment of our local economy that has developed around catering to Japanese visitors over the years doing things like offering group tour packages uh, and providing uh, Japanese language speakers to other businesses and other uh, other companies. But those companies have really been hurting since travel shut down. They've effectively had no business uh, because Japanese visitors have not been coming. Um, one of the people battling that is Alan Kinohata. He owns Events Services and Productions Hawaii. It's a family-run business on Oahu that focuses on Japanese tourism. They're involved in some major public events like the Honolulu Festival and the Pan Pacific Festival, and they also provide Japanese language services to other local businesses. Unfortunately, business went straight down and plummeted to zero because everything I deal with is with the Japanese market, including those festivals that I mentioned, and then of course providing that Japanese-speaking language specialists. So it's been a rough, rough year, and I'm not seeing any uh, light at the end of the tunnel. And so we're just hoping that things will get better. But it's looking kind of scary to see if you know will I still be able to provide for my family first, and then will my company be able to continue without any you know revenue coming in because there's still you know expenses that we have. And you might be thinking that uh, the return of some Japanese tourism, the relaxing of this quarantine, would provide that light at the end of the tunnel. But now is where we get to the complication that you mentioned, Bill. And that is that while Japanese visitors can now enter Hawaii without having to quarantine, they are still required to isolate at home for 14 days when they return to Japan. The Japanese government has a similar protocol to many places. And there is no waiving that. So even though Japanese citizens can come to Hawaii if they test negative for COVID-19 and be free to move around the islands, they still have to isolate and do that two-week quarantine when they get home to Japan. And industry insiders told me that they think this will keep the number of visitors low for the foreseeable future. Uh, one of the people I spoke with was Yoshikazu Kutara. He's the secretary of Japan Hawaii Travel Association. And he said that uh, the industry is excited about the return of some visitors, but believes the return quarantine will deter many would-be travelers. That's very good news, and those are good signs for recovery of tourism. However, Japan is still mandating 14-day quarantine after those Japanese visitors um, visited Hawaii and go back to Japan. They have to do a self-quarantine for 
14 days. We need to see those um, restrictions got to be lifted by Japanese government. And there's no indication that that's going to be happening anytime soon, particularly with cases on the mainland U.S. really spiking. So uh, we can expect that this will probably be a modest boost to the local economy for the foreseeable future. You know, it's interesting, Ryan, you mentioned that uh, cases going up in the mainland U.S., they've also been going up in Japan in different locations. Hokkaido has had a bit of a spike, and Tokyo in in recent days certainly has been uh, increasing. But as you point out, it looks like it's a two-step process. One is just the short term just establishing this, that it can be done, and that if, you know, for retirees, say, or someone who doesn't have to worry about coming back on the other end that a two-week quarantine isn't as bothersome for them on the Japan return side. But really, it's also sort of laying the groundwork in some ways for when a broader return is possible in terms of Japanese tourism here. Yeah, and that's what many people in the the local Hawaii visitor industry said is that we've got to start somewhere. And the, the first step was in October reopening travel from the mainland U.S. Uh, before that, everyone had to quarantine no matter what. Now anyone coming from a domestic U.S. city can enter Hawaii if they get that test and meet those criteria, can enter without the quarantine. It's now being extended to Japan, which, as I mentioned, is our second biggest market. The Ige administration is working to expand it even further. They're in talks with a few other countries around the Asia-Pacific. New Zealand is one, uh, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, and a few others. So they're hoping that this goes well, that the testing program is enough to keep allow people to come in without introducing a, a significant number of new cases and that it can continue to be expanded. But as we've heard from uh, a lot of economists and visitor industry uh, insiders as well, the biggest barrier is is what people feel, what uh, John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, called the animal spirits. People are not going to travel until they feel safe to do so. And many people will clearly not want to travel for health reasons for some time even with these protocols in place. And so uh, it, it's unlikely that we'll see a full return to, to uh, previous levels, pre-pandemic levels, until those individual concerns are met, uh, most likely by the presence of a vaccine. You know, another interesting point, because there are so many deep cultural ties and ties of affinity between Hawaii and Japan in particular, just because the Japanese public qualifies for the pre-travel testing, that does not go the other way. So U.S. residents That's still, right. still can't, uh, can't travel to Japan, negative test or not. Yeah, U.S. citizens are locked out of uh, quite a number of countries, actually, and uh, that's, I would imagine, unlikely to change anytime soon, given how the trend is looking on the mainland. Hawaii remains one of the healthiest states in the country, even though we are starting to see some increases as economic activity has resumed. But the virus is really, by all accounts, out of control in large swaths of the continental U.S., and until that trend changes, international travel for American citizens is likely to remain very restricted. So on the one hand, that could be beneficial to Hawaii because we may now be uh, one of the more appealing destinations for Americans who are healthy and interested in travel. And so we may get a little bit of boost on that side. But overall, the, the most likely outcome is that we start to slowly increase but remain well below pre-pandemic levels for probably at least the next 12 to 18 months. And we'll certainly keep an eye on those numbers and, and how they impact the, the travel and tourism uh, industries here. Ryan Fairty. Ryan, thanks. Thank you, Bill. Ryan Fairty, you can find his full story online at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the Ukiyo-e print series Hokusai's Mount Fuji, featuring Great Wave off Kanagawa, on view now through the 29th, honolulumuseum.org. From the war on drugs, America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. To decriminalization. Oregon is now the first state in the country to decriminalize hard drugs after voters approved Measure 110. We'll take a look at how voters are changing American drug policy. That's coming up on the next On Point from NPR. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. It's that time of year again. Thanksgiving is a week and two days away. But as with so much else in 2020, the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, and the rest of the holiday shopping season is looking a lot different because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Tina Yamaki is the president of the Retail Merchants of Hawaii. She spoke with The Conversation's Jason Ubai about how customers and businesses are approaching this usually busy shopping time. It's very different this year, and it's kind of unprecedented. We're not really sure what the norm is going to be, um, especially, you know, Hawaii right now, we have the highest unemployment rate. There's a lot of people whose salaries got cut. So people don't have the money to spend like they used to have. Um, and they're very budget conscious now, too. So we're seeing a lot of people going list shopping. You know, they'll only buy what's on their list, whereas maybe last year they would buy, um, you know, something for their friends and family and then also a couple gifts for themselves. Um, so we're seeing that a lot of that this year, too. And we're also seeing that um, the customers is changing the way that they're shopping as well. We're seeing more omni-channel where customers are shopping online and then they're picking it up at the store. Well, going back to just kind of staying on their list, uh, you're, you're not anticipating as much uh, impulse buying? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think what they're looking for is they're looking for that bargain. You know, so they're searching online. They're going to the stores because a lot of stores have in-store specials. Black Friday has been extended. I mean, it actually started in October. And what we're seeing is the sales are longer. You're not going to see the doorbuster sales like you did or the opening at midnight or 5 a.m. or open on Thanksgiving. A lot of that has gone away. So it's, it's very much changed on how people are shopping right now. They, they want that bargain. As far as retailers go, uh, what have you been hearing from them as um, as they prepare and are they, you know, trying to meet this demand, uh, l- trying to lower prices so they can uh, sell their inventory? You know, we've already seen um, a lot of Christmas things on sale already, and it's only you know <laughs> November, um, so they are lowering their prices a lot of times. They're having in-store specials. So it is going on. It's, you know, right now the customer can find a lot of great deals. But also, too, retailers have not brought in the volume of gifts and holiday items that they have in the past. Um, It's very different now. A lot of manufacturers and distributors, they're demanding cash on demand when the goods are delivered. Whereas before, you know, you got an invoice from them and you pay 60 days later, kind of like your credit card. Um, but that's not happening on a lot of instances. So, you know, if a customer sees something that they like, it's a great price, um, you know, by all means purchase it because it may not be in stock closer to Christmas or you're going to find out it's not the size, color, or model that you want. With um, this being usually the um, the busiest season of the year and kind of making up for a lot of uh of the sales for the year what are you hearing from retailers about uh, their business like or do they think that this will make up this uh period between now and the end of the year pick up enough to kind of make up for all the shutdowns and loss of business over the year you know i think that's a lot of people are hoping for whether that's going to happen you know we always are hopeful for that we never like to see when businesses shut down but we've also known that it's been a very hard year for a lot of retailers that were deemed non-essential from the beginning. They had to survive two shutdowns, and even though they were shut down, um, you know, they weren't able to sell online, a lot of them, because, they would. I mean, big stores can't bring all their inventory to somebody's house and do it from there, you know. 
and, and corporate sometimes don't allow that. And, you know, they still had to pay their rent, utilities, taxes, and all of that. So their debt has risen quite high. And while for smaller businesses, there were a lot of loans and grants for them, the medium and larger size local businesses, the only help that they ever got was the PPP loans or grants. So there are a lot of businesses struggling. There's a lot of them that, you know, Christmas now or these holiday seasons is kind of make it or break it for them. What are you hearing from merchants as far as what are they or what are they asking from the the public? You know, from the public itself is to buy local, you know, whether it's a national company or a local brand, it's just to buy local, you know, buy online, pick it up at the store. Um, A lot of the stores here in Hawaii have become distribution centers. And what people don't realize, I think, is, you know, a lot of these big national companies, they're like, oh, these are big box stores or they're um, big department stores or, you know, they're from the mainland. Why should we support them? But, you know, these are the people who hire our friends, family and neighbors, um, you know, to work in the stores. And a lot of these stores also hire local vendors. So, you know, to shop to shop locally in our stores is the best thing that they could do right now. And then on the on a switch side too, for businesses, you know what they're looking for, I guess, from the public or government is rent relief. There is a survey that came out recently, and it showed that you know there's a lot of businesses who are not going to be able to pay their rent by the end of the year, or only paying partial rent. And businesses, in order to survive, you know, need to pay rent, the largest single monthly expense that they have. And without businesses, you're not going to have jobs. And without jobs, you're going to have a, keep having a high empl- unemployment rate. So, you know, businesses do need help as well. We realize people have limited budgets, but it's, just, it's a tough time for everybody, and we understand that. Tina Yamaki of the Retail Merchants of Hawaii speaking with the Conversations Jason Ubai with an outlook on Hawaii's shopping season. It's now official. Hawaii has a statewide mandate for face coverings. It's the focus of Governor David Ige's latest emergency proclamation. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Ilani Avendano has been following this story and joins us with the latest. And Ilani, the idea of the proclamation to clear up any potential confusion with county variations? Yes, so the first mask mandate that what you saw that Governor Ige put in place was in April. That was included in the sixth emergency proclamation. Uh, yesterday, he signed the 15th proclamation. So we've been through many iterations of policy. But the main thing that this newly clarified mask mandate does is unify the mask rules of the state rather than the county rules like the former proclamation did. So now the rule explains states that everyone in the state needs to, quote, wear a mask, a face covering over their nose and mouth in public. Um, so, so that's sort of set, set in stone now. But the, I would say the major new things to pay attention to are, one, businesses are now expected to deny patrons um, who do not wear face masks. Uh, the second thing that this new mandate uh, outlines are the exemptions for folks who, who are not... Um, required to wear face coverings, and, you know, that's children under the age of five for people with medical conditions. Um, There's quite a list of exemptions. Uh, Third, it also makes it clear that um, you can still maintain, if if you can, maintain a six-foot distance. You actually don't have to wear a mask. That last one I mentioned means that there will be a lot of ambiguity out in public, I think. You know, it's interesting that you you mentioned that of the while outdoors, one physical distance of six feet from uh, other individuals uh, can be maintained at all times. Then you don't need to wear a mask. Um, 
House Speaker uh, Scott Psyche had something to say about that in terms of what he termed the Waikiki problem. Right, yeah. Speaker uh, Scott Psyche said enforcement key at this point, um, especially for people outdoors. You know, we have, you know, folks like to exercise outside and um, people jog. And if if you can keep a distance, then theoretically you don't have to wear a mask. And I know some people have trouble running and wearing a mask and breathing, right? But like he did mention that it seems to be a, um, he called it the Waikiki problem. Um, he pointed out that maybe, you know, in, in closer quarters in Waikiki, you have Kalakaua Avenue and things might be getting a little bit busier now. Um, if people are not wearing masks and they, they claim that they're not within six feet of others, they can say, I don't need to wear a mask. Um, but that might not actually be happening in practice. You know, one aspect of this this policy or set of policies that, that is not changed by this um, is the, the penalty part. So an offense on this is still a misdemeanor, which carries a possible fine of up to $5,000 a year in jail. Um, and Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell among those saying, you know, maybe it would be better to make this more of a, a traffic ticket model for offenses rather than, than something that's a full-on misdemeanor. Yeah, yeah. Local economist Sumner LaCroix uh, actually kind of likened our mask, um, you know, up to $5,000 fine or even a year in jail. As he said it's really kind of draconian. Um, other states and other cities have, have, you know, 100 to $200 fines, Um Mayor Caldwell has suggested imposing a $100 fine. Um, you can, if, I, I think that idea is if you can um, move away from this misdemeanor and uh, treat these sort of relations as traffic tickets and then have uh, be able to pay by mail, um, pay that ticket off, then enforcement will be much easier on the state, but then also um, might see more adherence to the rules. Looking for some some areas of, I guess, simplification on that, but on a lot of this under the mandate, as you said, there's now statewide clarity on a lot of aspects, but in terms of the enforcement side of this, that's presumably still up to the counties, right? Uh, Yeah, I think Governor said he is considering a framework for imposing funds, um, but the legislature would likely have to be involved. Um, and he said that we can expect there will be a lot of discussion to determine what are appropriate penalties. Um, but, you know, when we look at the data provided by the Hawaii Department of Health, actually the majority of folks in Hawaii are complying with mask rules. I think about 86% was the last I saw. Um, so definitely a lot more discussion about um, ways to reframe the enforcement of this mask mandate. And um, like I mentioned, uh, University of Hawaii economist Sumner McCoy, he was suggesting maybe a $150 to $200 fine might be more effective if it's widely applied to violators and treated like a public ticket. We will, uh, we will keep an eye on the movement of this. Uh, thanks, Eleni. Thank you. That was Eleni Avendano. You can find her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More information at proservice.com slash coronavirus. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to Dr. Peter Moginis Mark at UH Manoa. Hawaii Life and Blue Note Hawaii. They believe just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pacific American Lumber on Oahu with Neolith Centered Stone, a heat, stain, and scratch-resistant surface for indoor and outdoor countertops, flooring, and walls. P-A-C-A-M-Lumber.com. We're going to take another look from a bit of a different perspective at Black Friday, the busiest retail shopping day of the year, usually, and a little more than a week away. Diana Sue is the marketing director of Pearl Ridge Center. She spoke with The Conversation's Jason Ubai about how the Oahu Mall is preparing for the crowds while keeping people and Santa safe during the COVID-19 pandemic. As we had, as Pearl Ridge Center had experienced during the first shutdown and reopening cycle, um, once we had reopened, uh, there were no special sales or anything like that. We had experienced Black Friday-like crowds during our first week of reopening. We had lines that had wrapped around the exterior of the shopping center so that we can create a socially safe shopping environment and make sure that the interior, you know, common areas of the shopping center isn't overwhelmed with crowds of people. So with that in mind, um, and safety obviously being top of mind for Pro Ridge Center, we are preparing for Black Friday by beefing up our security presence to ensure our retailers have the support so that they can create a socially safe shopping environment within their stores for one of the busiest days and weekends of the year. In addition, Pro Ridge security team will be monitoring for safe practices, including the mandatory face mask wearing. And if our customers don't have one, we would be happy to provide a complimentary face mask for them to use. That our customers are practicing safe distancing when they're in Pro Ridge Center. Uh, we don't allow gathering of groups, large groups, and making sure that everyone is adhering to state and local regulations. And in addition to all of that, you know, Prairie Center has already a, a pretty rigorous disinfectant and cleaning practice that we've been sticking to. But for holiday season and for Black Friday and Black Friday weekend, we've really increased our stock of alcohol-based sanitizers um, to make sure that these dispensers that are located in highly trafficked areas are constantly filled and ready for use as our, as our customers walk through the center, enter, and exit. For some of our larger anchor retailers, such as Macy's, TJ Maxx, Ross, we experienced lines for those stores. For example, when TJ Maxx had initially reopened for the first and second shutdown, we had about 200 people lined up outside of TJ Maxx's door waiting to get in to shop. For no special deal, just to shop. So we understand that this is probably a likely scenario for Black Friday as well as Black Friday weekend. So we're working with our large anchors and retailers to have them create one point of entry and one point of exit so that customers can safely line up at the exterior of Purridge Center versus the interior. And this way each store can effectively enforce that you know, 50% capacity guideline. It sounds like there's a lot of precautions being uh into place and measures to, to mitigate any spread of the coronavirus? There are. We're taking this very, very seriously. Um, you know, we, we do have a pretty high demographic of families as well as elderly in our community. Um, and so we want to ensure that when they come to Pro Ridge Center, whether it be for shopping or just for hanging out with the family while the family shops around and dines, we want to make sure that they feel safe. And, you know, of course, health and safety is always top of mind for us right now, especially with knowing that we're going to probably be getting some pretty large crowds this shopping season. So in previous Black Fridays, there's been a lot of sales and sometimes customers, you know, get very excited and it's, you know, a rush to the door or a rush to get something. There's a limited amount. Uh, do you see things being differently as far as sales go and kind of trying to maintain some order among retailers and shoppers? Absolutely. I think that, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of national retailers especially um, recognize the fact that, you know, large gatherings, crowds are frowned upon. And so 
to adhere to local safety mandates and regulations as enforced by the state. You know, I think that over time, a lot of these national retailers have identified that and um, have made retail to go, meaning, you know, pickup areas, curbside pickup for retail outside of their stores, a priority. In addition to that, a lot of them are offering online sales that you can pick up locally at the store. For example, Macy's does a fantastic job of curbside pickup. You can shop online, get all the deals that you would normally for Black Friday, and just pull up and pick up curbside. For stores like TJ Maxx and Ross, obviously, you know, those are already at a discounted price. So um, they may not offer sales, but I do know that, you know, TJ Maxx and Ross, they're team does a phenomenal job in making sure that our customers are social distancing as they're lined up. And they work very closely with our management team to make sure that they have that parking lot capacity on the exterior of the shopping center to be offering something like that. So I think that a lot of these stores are also extending dates of their sales versus just a two-hour window or a 24-hour window. Black Friday is now either starting two, three weeks prior as you can see with the larger retailers, or they're extended all through the, the entire weekend into Cyber Mondays, the week following Black Friday. Usually there's a big push for seasonal hiring. Are you still, are you seeing that again this year? Yes. Um, you know, our, our tenants have done a fantastic job. We've, most of our tenants experience a, a sort of loyalty for their seasonal hires and, and temp um, hires in their stores. So um, they, they are almost staffed, but there are a few stores remaining that are still looking for some seasonal hires. And if anyone is interested, they can visit our website, ProRidgeOnline.com, to see what positions are available for the holiday season. It wouldn't be the holidays without Santa. So uh, what are the plans at ProRidge to keep uh, that tradition alive? Uh, will you be having an in-person Santa this year? ProRidge Center is planning to have a live Santa Claus. We're not doing a virtual Santa. We're not doing a cutout board of Santa. I think that's pretty traumatizing for some kids because they're looking forward to seeing Santa in person. So what we've done, we've put several precautionary measures in place and, and safety precautions in the sense that the Santa photo set that we currently have, we have created a way of putting Santa up on a platform and where the family stands and how the camera is positioned, when the photo is taken, it looks as though the family is standing right next to Santa by the angle of the camera so that Santa, the family, and Keiki never really physically come in contact with one another. And we don't have to worry about a plexiglass, um, any kind of glare or flashlight catching in the photo. That's one thing we've, we've implemented. Um, the other thing that we've implemented is that we have an online booking system. So previous to this, if you've ever experienced Santa photos at Pearl Ridge Center, the line literally snakes all the way to the exterior of the shopping center. Families love coming to take photos with Santa at Pearl Ridge. So this year we've gone on an online system where they can go to expressionshawaii.net, Santa2020, and they can book an appointment so that by the time they show up to the center, they can just walk right through, quickly take the photos, and not have to linger too long in the common areas or have to wait in line. Additionally, you know, of course, we have our hand sanitizing stations prior and post to entering into the photo set. We also make sure that uh, photos, you know, exchange through many different hands. So this year we've gone through to a completely digital experience where families get to still hand uh, – They'll select what photos they're interested in as they do several different poses through the experience. But at the end of the whole experience, they get a USB drive that has been sanitized and bagged that has their photos on there versus printed and having it transferred through many, many different hands. Anything else about Black Friday uh, that uh, we should mention? Yeah, um, I just wanted to mention, you know, Pro Ridge Center has extended our Black Friday hours from 6 a.m. all the way to 10 p.m. Some stores are going to remain open even after the shopping center closes until 11 p.m. The reason why we're extending the hours so late and so early is so that, you know, we understand that this year a lot of um, our customers might be a little um, 
hesitant in coming for big crowds. So for our customers that are looking for um, you know, the off-peak hours, we are extending shopping hours at Pro Ridge Center to make that shopping experience a little bit more comfortable for everyone. And will this uh, extend through the season as well, up until Christmas Day? So we do have extended hours, just not from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. That's on Black Friday only. For uh, the day after Black Friday, November 28th, it will be 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. So another day of extended shopping. And then we're going to extend shopping hours starting December 11th all the way through the 23rd, the day before Christmas Eve. And the shopping center will be open from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Looking into the future, aside from Black Friday, what do you see for uh, Pro Red Center uh, in 2021? I think that as we move forward, um, you know, I think for, for Pro Red Center, we are looking to hopefully return back to some normalcy where we can have various entertainment as well as um, events for our families and for our customers. But, of course, that all depends on the situation with COVID-19 and making sure that we continue to adhere to the local and state mandates for COVID-19. I will say that, you know, retail, as well as the way everyone dines, has obviously changed, as we've all experienced during this pandemic. So one of the programs that we've recently implemented that will most likely continue into 2021 is a program called Retail to Go. And how it works is we offer four pickup locations where the stalls are clearly marked with the retail to go name. And it's a convenient curbside pickup experience for retailers who are participating in it. And it's not just retailers, it also includes our eateries and restaurants. So how it works is guests will have the ability to place their order, purchase the items, whether it's via phone, online, or the app. It depends on how the retailer restaurant prefers it. They then drive up, they pull up to the curbside that is marked with retail to go signs, and they can either stay in their vehicle or can they, they can just, you know, jump out, pick up their stuff and then go and not really have to look for parking around the center. And if you've ever been to our shop, shopping center, Pro Ridge's parking lot is usually pretty packed. So it, it creates a sort of easeability for our customers to run in and out or for retailers to come out and deliver their goods to their customers for a contactless shopping experience. That was Diana Sue, Marketing Director of Pearl Ridge Center, talking with the conversations Jason Ubai with an update on the mall's plans for Black Friday and the rest of the holiday shopping season. Rice has a long history here in Hawaii, and this week we're taking a closer look at some of the highlights of that history. Back before the pandemic, Catherine Cruz headed to Kauai and the Hanalei Rice Mill, where she talked story with Rodney Haraguchi. His past is tied to the rice paddies there that are now all planted in taro. Hanalei is where most of the state's poi comes from. Last year's devastating floods forced the shutdown of the historic rice mill that used to be open for tours. It also leveled the family home, which is being rebuilt. The rice mill tours are still suspended due to the pandemic, and the rice plans are also on hold. But you can still find Rodney Haraguchi out in the fields at 4 o'clock every morning. He reflected on the setbacks to their fields and their plans for the mill. I think it was about 1924, I think, where my great-grandpa, my grandpa, and my grandpa's three brothers, they did rice here. And I think they had about 75 acres. And this was after, I think it was called the Munsing Company. If you remember, the, one of the first immigrants to come to work in the sugar fields was the Chinese. So they came here, and I guess they saw the need for rice production for all the uh, Chinese workers. So they grew Chinese rice. So the Munsing Company was one of the biggest 
in Hanalei. As a time went on, when the Japanese immigrants came to work in the sugar fields, now they didn't want probably the longer grain rice. They wanted the Japanese shorter grain rice. So I guess there was a it was a good transition, and so our grandpa, great grandpa, they did their sugar plantation contract, and then they saw the opportunity that the Munsing Company was going to sell out, and so. Uh, great grandpa and the the four boys said, you know what, let's take that opportunity, and so I think they had something like I think about twenty five horses, you know, to to run the seventy five acres of rice. You have since gone from rice to taro, but you still have the old mill here. But that was affected during the floods. After Hurricane Eva, in, in fact, prior to Hurricane Eva, maybe a year prior. The Kauai Historical Society. I think it was um, Bonds Resnick, Eric Moyer, Carol Wilcox, came from the Historical Society and looked at the, the mill and it was just about falling apart. I opened the door and they went, oh! And I thought they were pulling my leg because it was, to me, just falling apart. And they said, this is of historical value. And actually, I was going to ready to take it apart, but my wife said, check with the Kawaii Historical Society. So I contacted them, they came, they looked at it, and they were in awe of all the equipment in there. And so I think they, I think, wrote a, or had some funds to have two young architects from the West, uh, East Coast come. and. I think it was the summer before Hurricane Eva, they took all the measurements of the mill and put it on a blueprint. And then Hurricane Eva came, demolished the rice mill, and the way it fell down, it kind of protected some of the machinery. The building fell apart. But, and so, but then we also had the blueprint. And right away, my wife, and Barnes, I think, um, more my wife, I think, we formed a non-profit, Ho'opula Pula Haraguchi Rice Mill. And that's when I talked to my brother, some of the relatives saying, look, I can't do it by myself. So you said they'll, they'll do as much as they can. So we formed that Ho'opula Pula Haraguchi Rice Mill. And then that was the beginning. With Barnes Resnick, he was the Grove Farm Homestead. He was a curator very respected, intelligent person. And that's how he held our hand and taught us about historical preservation. So you've had to make repairs to that building or rebuild it more than once? Yes, twice. And it was very interesting because I think it was in 1929 or 1930, the rice mill burnt down and my grandpa rebuilt it from the original. And then, so with that fire rebuilt, Hurricane Eva rebuilt, Hurricane Iniki rebuilt. So it went through a lot. But I think it was in 1985, I think, we opened it up for uh, the public. And we started off with uh, children. And I think to today, I think it's over 35,000 children and adults coming to visit. One of the reasons is that because when I was growing up in Hanali school, when the teachers said that we're going to do excursion, Rodney was one of the first out the door. <laughs> <laughs> and so I always thought that, you know, I learned a lot going on excursion. And so I always had that yearning to have the kids do that because I know a lot of kids, like myself, learn better outside. So yeah. talk about what happened with the floods then, uh, what was a year and a half ago? Yeah. So. April, I think it was the 15th, April 15th, my, grand, my dad's, um, from his recollection, and his dad, they never had this kind of flood. I mean, Hanali always floods, but small ones, yeah? And to me, this was a historical flood. Not only, to me, I didn't see the rainfall as a heavy rainfall, and maybe it was more in the Malka. But, um, and it could have been a combination because the tide was high. 
so the water uh, flood waters cannot recede as quickly but um anyway it was the, the highest i've seen um, our home office the floor fell down and um anything what the water hit right here it's it was uh, i built these shelves to put everything up on the shelf to avoid the flood and that was a few months before the flood a friend of mine uh, built this shelving but you know the flood went a foot above it and so a lot of the tools i haven't really replaced yet so as i as i need i oh yeah i lost this tool i need to go get another one here and the floods also went through the yeah. mill as well yeah so some of the historical stuff i think we did a rough cleaning i have some old um i think it was like uh the anahola general store um there was a um, showcase you know the old store showcase the glass showcase they didn't want to uh, demolish it or give it away so they told me if I could take it so I have it in the mail so that we can put our ar artifacts in but the flood went in so we just did a rough clean but not a clean cleaning that you know that to me is good enough so people can come and look at yeah. right so it's still closed oh yeah yeah so so the tours that you had to suspend you resume but it doesn't include the mill anymore. Yeah, it's only on the terrace side. Until I can catch up with building my home, <laughs> bringing mama home first, and then we can get back. Gosh, I understand that you had a test plot of some rice. I don't know if you can talk about that, because yeah. you were hoping to maybe kind of revive some of that uh, history as well. Yeah, so it's always been my goal, one. I think it was the Hurricane Eva. I had a small field of rice growing because we rebuilt the rice mill we rebuilt it in 85 i always wanted to see if the rice can be run through that old mill again so the hurricane iniki i had a before hurricane iniki i had a test plot of a field of rice it was growing real nice but when the hurricane came and knocked the mill down again well there goes the the plan so i we dropped that and then now with the 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 birds um, eating the taro the, the three endangered birds the nene the coot and the galenil yeah so that was our idea is that if we could see if we can help displace the bird eating the taro and eating something else so plant the rice for the birds so they leave your taro alone yeah but you see so but like I said, th this is an experiment that is going to take time. So right now, it's in the kind of in the limbo right now uh, until the house is built. And so, Mama is one of the the um, mainstay. So I want to make sure that she comes back and enjoy a place that she can uh, enjoy. And so we were just standing out here uh, right by the taro fields, and you pointed out a red truck on the other side of the the valley here and you said it was your dad going to work yeah he's 97 and in april he's going to be 98 and every day except sunday he comes up and he just was mowing the fields early this morning and now he's on excavator excavating some of the um, silt that came in from the last flood we're still cleaning up from the december 2019 flood so it's always cleaning up, you know, maintenance of the farm. Yeah. Right, always something to do. Yeah, always <laughs> something to do, <laughs> yeah. And so that must have been very hard uh, for him and you to see your family home, which your family grew up in, just kind of wrecked in this whole flood. Yeah, like, that's why, like I was saying earlier, that it was kind of bittersweet. I knew I have the plan to rebuild but to demolish the house. And friends of mine told me, a, con a contractor told me, hey Rod, you need help? I'll come and demolish it for you. But I wanted to do myself because one, there's a lot of personal stuff in there. As we tearing down, so, oh wait, 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 I need to get that picture. <laughs> so it took a while, and but um, 
I, I know there's a lot of memory that I'm erasing that I can see but I told my wife and my ch kids that you know what we'll build better memories so that's the goal that we can you know look forward you know it's good to look back but not too much looking back <laughs> you can look forward Kauai farmer Rodney Haraguchi talking story with HBR's Catherine Cruz he still has hopes for the taro farm to pursue the idea of replanting some rice to entice the nene to lay off the taro. The nene was just this year taken off the endangered species list, but their growing numbers still a challenge to farmers as the native geese have taken a liking to eating greens, not to mention sweet potatoes, too. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, serving the islands for 150 years through job creation and civic support. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii with a commitment to respect Hawaii's communities, people, cultures, and environment. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. Stephen, I really don't like where this interview is now going. John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods Market, is a famously outspoken leader. But you know what? Every time you get a scar, you try not to do the same stupid thing again. Mackey argues for a more conscious style of leadership. How is that holding up now that Whole Foods is owned by Amazon? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. That is the conversation for today. Tomorrow, have you ever seen a water buffalo in the islands? We'll introduce you to a Kauai farmer who brought back the water buffalo, once a mainstay in Hawaii's rice fields. We like to hear from you. Have a story to share? You can call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR, or you can tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Bill Dorman. Catherine Cruz will be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation. Aloha. Thank you.